Kia ora everybody, welcome to episode 23 of The Stag Roar. This episode we speak with Megan Ramos, who is the Director of the Intensive Dietary Management and features on the podcast Obesity Code, hosted by Carl Franken, with her fellow director, Dr. Jason Fung. Intensive Dietary Management Coaching Program provides the education, guidance, support and structure necessary for successful weight loss and reversal of type 2 diabetes, which for me is bloody exciting. Uh, it's also an online coaching program to naturally treat weight and other metabolic-related issues such as type 2 diabetes, PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, fatty liver, um, and they do this without the use of medication, supplements or surgery. Megan speaks about her own journey with PCOS and type 2 diabetes and fatty liver, and she drops plenty of gems about ways to achieve your dietary or lifestyle goals, which if you take a step back, follow through very well in terms of our, the way we live our lives, um, especially what she says at the end about celebrating those small increments, uh, following through with what you're doing, getting back on the horse, getting back on the bike, and not not letting a small failure derail the whole thing. So super interesting talk with Megan she explains things very clearly having a uh, business partner like Dr Jason Fung um, who is all about the analogies um, it's such a great chat and we did this in the middle of the night here in New Zealand it was so exciting and I'm just really happy and really proud to share you this episode of the Stag Raw so without further ado let's get into it have the earphones in and enjoy what is a great podcast. Cheers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's here. It's 3 a.m. in the morning, and we're talking across the uh, what is it, the Pacific and across country to Toronto. We're sitting here with Megan Ramos from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Megan, what did you get up to this weekend? You were just mentioning it's about freezing. <laughs> Um, we got up to lots of snow <laughs> this weekend, so we kind of hibernated um, a little bit, but it was a good chance to make some bone broth uh, to help us prep for our upcoming fast. Um, we're doing our first IDM group fast starting on Thursday of this week. Uh, so we, we stayed inside uh, like bears going through hibernation to avoid the the outdoor weather this weekend and our place smelled like Thanksgiving um, with all of the broth so we made some good chicken broth. Nice, uh, do you have a particular recipe, anything you, that you like to add in? I really like to make my bone broth super bland um, and there's a there's a reason for that um, because when you go to reheat it you can season it however you want. So each cup or bowl of broth that you have can be very different afterwards. Um, but when you're making these big pots of broth, if you season it very strongly, you can't get away from that flavor. So every cup you have is going to taste exactly the same. And the monotony of that um, drives people crazy. So I just like making a bland broth. Um, so chicken bones, some raw and filtered apple cider vinegar, some celery, some carrots, green onion, mushrooms, um, salt and pepper, just keeping it pretty basic. And then I like to change it depending on my mood um, and what I'm craving each time I go to drink it. So I really encourage people to make it as bland as possible great and so how long is this fast going to be and what do you use the broth for how do you use the broth 
So the um, fast, this particular fast is going to go from Wednesday night um, until Sunday uh, at lunchtime. Um, so about about four days of fasting. Um, so we're, we're doing it on our IDM membership community, our first communal fast. Um, uh, some people prefer to fast on weekdays and some people prefer to fast on weekends. So we're sort of overlapping um, with two weekdays and, and and then the weekend, just so we can sort of try to accommodate everyone. Um, for me, I often try to just do water fasting um, when I am fasting nowadays because my goals have now changed. Um, I'm looking for more disease prevention, so things like cancer prevention, neurological disease prevention. Um, we have some, some hereditary cancers in my family, dementia and Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's diseases in my family. My family's got everything. Um, so looking for more disease prevention. So um, my goal through fasting is to achieve a state called autophagy, where you get some cellular recycling, you get rid of bad proteins in the body that can cause and contribute to some of these diseases. You can repair your mitochondria. Um, so uh, for that kind of fast, you need to be pretty strict on your consumption of fluids, um, salt and water. Um, but my husband and I, um, we're, we're we got into weight training pretty intensely this uh, past September. We'll be traveling for a lot of March. Um, so we're going to the gym every day, um, except for Wednesdays um, in the month of February. So for me, when we're doing that intense weight training, um, electrolytes are really important. So for this particular fast, since it is an extended fast of about four days, I'm going to use the bone broth to supplement for electrolytes before my fast, uh, or sorry, before my workout and after my workout during this fast. Um, so that's why we wanted to have some bone broth ready for this particular fast this week. That's fantastic. What sort of uh, weight training are you doing? Are you doing a uh, interval training, a CrossFit training, a or in a sort of Olympic powerlifting style of things. Oh, geez, it's more like CrossFit. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm such a beginner, um, but I've mastered the deadlift now, and um, I'm I'm getting better working out some mobility issues um, that I have now that I'm in my um, mid 30s. Um, that's really sort of scary thing for me to say, but all of the stupid um, activities I did in my 20s are now catching up to me and my body is falling apart in my mid thirties. Um, so just focusing on mobility, um, but it's, it's more like CrossFit, um, more like CrossFit training. So what was the motivation to begin uh, weight training in your thirties? So for me, um, when I turned 30, um, I'll be 34 this year. Um, when I turned 30, I decided to go for a DEXA body composition mm -hmm. scan. It was, it was my first one. Um, and I went and it also gives you a bone mass density score. And mine was very poor. Mm -hmm. So I, I attribute that to my genetics. Um, every woman in my family over the age of 40 has been diagnosed with severe osteoporosis. My mother actually fractured her hip at the age of 36 without even falling. Like her bones were just that brittle. Mm -hmm. um, that regular activity uh, resulted in a broken hip. Um, so I have poor genetics on both sides of my family when it comes to that, but also um, excess consumption of phosphoric acid from drinking diet sodas um, nonstop pretty much throughout my youth and throughout my 20s. Um, 
And uh, so I was given, gifted this wonderful diagnosis of osteoporosis on um, my, my 30th birthday. Don't ever do tests like that on major birthday. <laughs> it's a bad, bad life decision. Um, but it, it really sort of motivated me. And I, inc- I wasn't in, in a position where I could really do weight training at that time. I had um, some cardiac surgery and was doing extensive traveling and it just didn't work out. So I did extended fast um, because when you fast uh, at certain intervals, your body releases quite a lot of growth hormone and that can help rebuild lost bone mass. So just through fasting, I was able to go from um, quite, quite moderately severe osteoporosis to very mild osteopenia. Um, But I still haven't been able to sort of get into that normal bone mass density range. I'm, I'm sitting at that osteopenia state. Um, so I'm 34, um, and next year we're going to start trying to expand our family, and I would like to have really good bone mass density before I, I get um, pregnant, just sort of based on, on my family history. So weight training uh, for me, of course, it's great to put on muscle mass. It will help me lose a little bit more body fat that I would like to lose, but mostly it's for my my bone health and also you know, just improving my mobility now that I'm, I'm getting older and I'm seeing that <laughs> my mobility is not as great um, as I think it should be for someone my age or someone even much older than me. Um, so those are the reasons why I started doing doing weight training, just getting my body ready to for the next stage in its life and to be able to handle all of the trials and tribulations like pregnancy that come along with it. Wow, best of luck. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm expecting my first child next month, so it's an exciting time. <laughs> um, oh, cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you. I touched on what you do. Who is Megan Ramos today? She's 34, obviously, and into fasting. <laughs> uh, if you could explain it a bit better, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no problem. So aside from being um, a a 34-year-old Canadian with poor bone mass density, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, I run a clinic with my colleague, Dr. Jason Fung in Toronto, Ontario, called Intensive Dietary Management Program. Uh, Several years ago, I was experiencing lots of health issues. My whole life, um, actually, uh, has been sort of bombarded with one issue after another. I was 12 when I was diagnosed with fatty liver disease, and I was 14 when I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which is uh, called PCOS in in Mm. short um, for abbreviation. Um, And uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome is sort of like diabetes of the ovaries and fatty liver disease is like diabetes of the liver. Um, But I was underweight and my doctors didn't understand why I had these conditions if I was underweight because these were conditions usually associated with people who were were obese. But because my body mass index, my BMI was considered underweight, they they were very perplexed. But um, even though I was technically underweight, um, I had brittle bones um, and I was not very muscular. So I was just essentially a little sack of fat. So even though the number on the scale in in ratio in comparison to my height um, was very little, um, all I was was a little sack of fat. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, my first initial diagnosis with metabolic syndrome. 
Um, so I remained a, a little sack of uh, fat through my teenage years and my early to uh, early twenties. Um, the PCOS um, just became worse as I got older, and the fatty liver disease that didn't change too much. Um, but I was more concerned about the PCOS, as we've talked about, and looking forward to becoming a mom in the next mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, so this threat of infertility really scared me. So I saw a whole bunch of specialists. You know, they started talking about how low my hormones were. I should try to conceive sooner than later. I'm probably going to enter menopause early. Um, they talked about freezing my eggs and all kinds of unpleasant things and very expensive things too um, for me to have a family later on. And it broke my heart and everyone was just sort of perplexed why this very skinny girl um, was having and suffering from polycystic ovarian syndrome, but I was just a little sack of fat. I was 97 pounds at five foot two and I was morbidly obese. So um, in my mid-20s, it caught up with me, and I was diagnosed um, with type 2 diabetes, and I had just become a large sack of fat at that point. I had gained almost 100 pounds or 45 kilos, um, and I was totally miserable, absolutely miserable. Um, so I'm a clinical researcher by trade, and my colleague Jason Fung is a, a kidney specialist. So I studied kidney disease, and most of my research focused around monitoring the progression of patients' kidney disease so we could try to find better markers um, to determine these different changes in kidney disease to see if we could maybe find a marker that would help us detect kidney disease much earlier. So we would initially start out with a healthy group of patients um, that had some indications that kidney disease might be coming down the line. So we could monitor their blood markers and see if we could point out or figure out any other relationships in these blood markers and their kidney functions so we could diagnose it earlier. Almost all of these patients that I worked with had diabetic-related kidney disease. Almost all of our kidney disease patients have kidney disease because of diabetes. And as their diabetes got worse, their kidney disease got worse. It was hand in hand. And there was nothing that the kidney doctor could do uh, for, for their patient. If the diabetes is getting worse, which it did in every case, their kidneys got worse. And it was just a matter of doing your best to maintain the kidney function with a few limited medications out there and just monitoring their progression until they needed dialysis um, or seeing if they're eligible for a transplant. But there was no, no reversal of kidney disease. Um, so I, it was my job to essentially watch people die from diabetes and obesity. Mm. And uh, here I am, 27 years old, being told I'm diabetic, having this weight that I couldn't figure out how to lose. I saw fancy dietitians. I was working out like a maniac. I was eating like 800 calories a day. I wasn't eating any fat, and I just kept getting fatter. Um, and it was, it was really frustrating for me, and I didn't want to be a statistic. And Dr. Jason Fong, he's a few years older than me, he's, um, and he is sort of getting really feeling defeated. You know, he was just watching people die too. And a friend of his had talked about how she had done some fasting and had lost some weight and had lowered her blood sugar levels. Her reason for fasting was more spiritual, um, but she noted these changes um, in her body and in her lab test results and thought that they might be interesting to my colleague. So Jason started doing some research on fasting and religion. 
Uh, you know, why, mm -hmm. why is fast, fasting has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It's not a new concept by any means. Um, but why did people do it for thousands and thousands of years? Was there a good reason why we stopped doing it in the 1900s? Um, so he did some research and we had a conversation about it. It was pretty interesting. So I started fasting. And so I was our guinea pig and I had an incredible amount of success. I've lost 86 pounds. I totally reversed my diabetes. I no longer have fatty liver disease. I have the fertility hormones of someone in their early teenage years. So infertility is on an issue. There's no more PCOS to contend with. Um, so I've, you know, I'm going to be able to have kids and it's, it's been really remarkable. I've been given my life back through fasting and of course following a more low carbohydrate diet. I don't, I, I follow personally a ketogenic diet, um, but that's been an evolution over the last five years. So we opened up a, cl a clinic within our nephrology practice um, to help uh, with our diabetic patients at giving them a shot you know, to not need dialysis potentially, or to do their best to stop their diabetes now from destroying their kidneys. Um, so we had a tremendous amount of success in office. Um, and now we've become an online program um, that enables us to help people all over the world. So people don't have to come to Toronto, Canada to receive treatment at our clinic. So we have a team of, um, team of experts who uh, Jason and I have trained personally and have worked with too for many years on a more nephrology level um, to become experts in therapeutic fasting and, and help coach people through how to fit it into their lifestyle and, and how to achieve the results that they want to achieve clinically at the same time. Jason and I still have a very small in-office program in Toronto where we are now experimenting with how different conditions um, can be affected by uh, by intermittent fasting. So uh, we have more cancer patients, patients with more neurological problems like uh, multiple cirrhosis or Parkinson's disease, dementia. Um, we have uh, some women now we're doing a small pilot with women with these prolactomas. So prolactoma is a tumor on the pituitary gland that causes your hormones to be all out of whack. And the result of this is that your body always thinks that it's pregnant. So you never have regular menstrual periods, you're always lactating. So for these women, they can't get pregnant because their body's under the assumption that they always are. And we, we're having some really neat uh, success um, in, in all areas that we're looking into. Alzheimer's disease um, and dementia is a, a little bit more tricky to navigate with fasting. With Alzheimer's disease, people forget that they're supposed to fast or they forget, you know, that uh, they're on a fasting day, they forget when they eat. So just sort of seeing what a ketogenic diet can do with Alzheimer's patients. We've had more success with patients with dementia um, fasting. Um, so we're, we're trying to see what the scope of this intermittent fasting thing can do. So um, I am a clinical researcher um, who now specializes in therapeutic fasting in a clinical setting. Fantastic. That was a long, long answer for no, a that, question. That was, that was, that was perfect, and, and it's, it's prompted a couple of questions. Uh, for, first off, you, you mentioned at the start there about diet sodas. Um, do, do you think that was your cause of fatty liver, liver or, or do you, have you come up with, with sort of an idea around what might have been uh, prompting that condition? 
at such a young age, um, I believe I developed fatty liver because I think I was born with metabolic syndrome. Right. Um, it, something people always say to me, well, you're, you're diabetic because it's in your DNA. And I'll say, well, how come my grandmother didn't develop diabetes until she was 74? Mm. And how come my father was 55? And why was I 27? You know, it clearly, yes, I do have a family disposition, predisposition for it genetically. That's not a question there. But how come there's now these huge age gaps? You know, in my grandparents' generation, um, everyone, no one was diagnosed with diabetes until they were over the age of 70. Diabetes was an elderly disease. Um, and then in my parents' generation, even among all my friends in my social circle, all in their 50s, like they're all being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So then it's becoming a younger person's disease. And now um, the number of people that come into the clinic or join our online program are around my age and they have type 2 diabetes. So something drastically had to change in our diet and how my grandmother ate, how my father ate, and how I ate growing up were all very different. In the late 1970s is sort of when the U.S. you know changed their food guidelines, and, and a lot of the world follows soup after the U.S. It makes a large declaration. So saturated fat's bad for you. Fat is bad for you. You need to eat a low-fat diet, um, and they put a lot of pressure on the World Health Organization to promote these guidelines too, which had a wider impact on other countries and mm -hmm. establishing food guidelines. So I was born in 1984. Um, so I grew up on baby formula where the first ingredient on the label was cornstarch. Um, I grew up in the era of McDonald's being on every street corner in the city of Toronto with two very busy parents where it was very easy to order in pizza on, on Monday night and Chinese food on Tuesday night and just swing by McDonald's on the way home on Wednesday. Um, I was part of the generation too that snacked. Talking to my grandmother before she passed, um, she was funny. So uh, she she was a spirited woman, and she was the only person that uh, in my family that initially supported me. She said, "You know, Megan, your dad didn't get fat till he moved out of my home," <laughs> and she said he was never allowed to snack before dinner. He was never allowed to snack after dinner unless it was a very special occasion. We had dessert on the weekends. Um, he, and he never went to school with a cooler full of treats to have, you know, at his morning recess and his afternoon recess break. It, food was nutrition for the body. And she said even the same with her. She didn't, you know, get fat and get sick till she got used to sort of getting this habit of snacking. And her life got busy as she got older. My grandfather was really sick. She had four children. She started working full time. And she said, you know, a bag of potato chips at 10 o'clock at night became comforting to her later on in life. And she said that's when she started to get sick. So I grew up always eating that way. I grew up in the era of Costco where my mother would go to Costco and buy us each our own bag of potato chips from Costco and then these giant bags. Um, so I think I've just had metabolic syndrome from a, uh, from a very young age. And that's why we're seeing these conditions occur much earlier. You know, in the United States alone in 2015, there was over 10,000 children diagnosed with type two diabetes under the age of 10 like that's crazy because mm. now it's now it's a disease of children type 2 diabetes over 8000 children in 2015 in the US had bariatric surgery 
Um, and that's just like, that's just unheard of, but they want to do it, do it younger. Um, so I, I think it's just a reflection of the changing times as to why my metabolic syndrome crept in on me at the age of 12 rather than creeping in at the age of 52 or, or 72, just because I grew up with terrible food guidelines from the start, whereas previous generations didn't. Nice. Um, and so you're looking at intermittent fasting and in a lot of cases, ketogenic diet, you mentioned that with Alzheimer's patients. Uh, Dr. Karen Zinn in New Zealand, I was watching a video from her uh, lecturer, low carb down under, she was talking about how that can almost mimic fasting she showed a a week week recordings of her blood sugar and and ketones and her first two days where she did uh 24 hour fasts she her ketones went way up but then she was able to maintain that off very very easily can you can you speak on how it can mimic the fasting sort of experience it can and it can't. Yep. Um, so likewise to um, my ketones and my blood glucose levels are, are very identical on a fasting day and an eating day from a ketogenic diet. Um, so there's a lot of hormonal changes that occur when you're fasting that don't necessarily occur when you're following a ketogenic diet. Um, so I, I think a ketogenic diet's change. Like I, my husband follows it. I follow it strictly. I don't know if I would have married my husband, to be perfectly honest, if he wasn't going to follow this way of life. It's, I think it's a very important diet for maintaining health and also improving some, some markers. But the fasting really affects you hormonally on a much deeper level. Um, the, the fluctuations that you see in production of human growth hormone um, mm. when you're fasting, you don't get that while following a ketogenic diet. Um, you don't get uh, as severe of an insulin reduction too. So when you're following a ketogenic diet, you're definitely not spiking your internal insulin levels, but you're not reducing them. And in a lot of cases of metabolic syndrome and Alzheimer's disease is just like type three diabetes, mm. they're calling it nowadays. Um, you have these conditions, they manifest because there's toxic levels of insulin in the body already. So a ketogenic diet won't, um, won't raise that level higher. And initially when you follow a ketogenic diet, you'll lose some body fat. And when body fat reduction, you do see a reduction in the insulin levels, but sometimes it's just not dramatic enough to treat people who are, who are very sick. So people who have, have a long standing history of diabetes, a long standing history of obesity, um, or who suffer from more serious conditions like Alzheimer's disease, um, fatty liver disease, sometimes a ketogenic diet just isn't enough. And I think the fasting definitely helps turbocharge or accelerate uh, the benefits of a ketogenic diet because it has a much more dramatic impact on these hormone levels. Um, so you see that reduction of insulin going down to normal. My baseline fasting insulin was 304 picomoles per liter. It's now 11 picomoles per liter on my January blood work. Um, so, and a large part of that is to do with the fasting. So the fasting has more of an impact on the insulin levels and also the human growth hormone production, um, I think is very important, especially nowadays we're seeing so many men diagnosed with osteoporosis later on in life. And as we age, we start to lose muscle, muscle mass. So this production of growth hormone periodically throughout the fast, um, can definitely help sustain muscle mass and help grow muscle mass as we get older. And we see that 
with a lot of patients in office too. I'll have a lot of these um, older men who are excited to show me their biceps and triceps. And they're like, look, look, oh, we've done a shovel snow. But they're, <laughs> they're saying they look better at, uh, in their 60s than they did in their, did in their 20s. And, and that's largely attributed to the growth hormone production. Um, so I do think there are other benefits of fasting. Um, but I, I think a ketogenic diet is extremely important for prevention of disease. And I definitely think it's an important tool in the treatment of disease, but I, I think it is just one of several tools in the treatment of disease. Great. And uh, it's, this is good because if you've got your own experience of type two diabetes, often when you tell people about uh, first going low carb and you don't even mention ketogenic and now you're talking fasting, um, they, they panic that they're going to be hypo. Um, can you talk to that? Because yes, it is, uh, a problem, especially if you're on insulin or insulin secreting stuff, but um, I guess that's where the intensive dietary management comes in. Yeah, so it's, it's very important to, to work with a, a healthcare provider that can help you navigate. Um, so if someone comes into our clinic, um, we don't really we don't do the keto and the fasting together off the bat. Um, the diet, I mean, people have these long-standing relationships with food and mm. these these habits when it comes to food that are deeply ingrained and these cultural relationships with food that are very important to them. Um, so when we mention fasting, um, they often like that because it's easier to not eat than to try to redevelop their, their diet from scratch. Um, so they, we find more often are, are much more willing to just go for days without eating than trying to overhaul their entire diet. Um, so we usually focus on that with the patient first, and then we bring in the diet. Usually people start to feel so well on their fasting days, and then they revert back to their old foods on their eating days, and they feel so horrendous, and they want to feel good. People naturally want to feel good. So then they're more willing and motivated to start working on developing better food habits. Um, but it's, it's really tough. You know, there's cultural significance of certain foods um, in various, uh, various regions. There's um, that emotional connection to food, that reward mechanism with food. Um, so that takes, it takes a lot of time. Um, I've been doing intermittent fasting for, for seven years. Um, the first two, I was able to go low carb. My second year was was very low carb, um, and then then my ketogenic diet um, year three was sort of a half low carb, half keto diet, and and now it's evolved into a full blown ketogenic diet. Um, but I'm despite my albino appearance, I'm actually mostly Italian. Um, so I grew up and I don't look like my family. Um, I look like the milkman's daughter, uh, but, uh, but things like I haven't had pasta in two years and that's not because I'm putting some sort of restriction on myself from a food item that I ate about four times a week for the first 27 years of my life. It's just because I don't care for it anymore. Um, so I find that people, you know, as they start to develop better habits, it contributes to more better habits. And then that really changes your, your motivation. Now, when I want something for comfort, I really try not to comfort eat, but I'm more likely to go towards, you know, some chicken wings or to go towards, you know, a nice, um, nice bacon and egg dish um, for comfort food rather than going for the pasta. And to me, it's totally bizarre that this ha change happened in me. So 
a lot of people because they're just doing first the fasting and then sort of the diet. Um, It's not too much at once. So we're not too terribly concerned about them going super hypoglycemic. Of course, there's always the odd patient that wants to be perfect and jumps in with both feet and does everything right away. Usually we, we sort of we see them in follow-up very quickly after their initial uh, consultation. So we can determine what kind of uh, approach they are taking this. Our, our trajected approach is that they'll start with the fasting and then as their diet improves, we'll deal with the medications and their diet at that time. Um, but there, there's the, maybe about one out of every 20 individuals goes super gung-ho, actually goes home and throws out everything um, that has, a, has refined sugar in it, um, gets rid of all of their bread and just stocks up on bacon and eggs and sardines. Um, so we, we gauge that really quickly so we can adjust their medications um, accordingly to prevent them from going hypoglycemic. But even at a baseline, um, in our clinic, Jason Fung, he gives them very specific medication instructions for their eating days and their fasting days. And usually people are quite shocked at how reduced their medication is on their fasting days. So that comforts them and knowing if, if they're taking, you know, only a quarter of the insulin, for example, um, that they would regularly take and they're used to their blood sugar levels being higher anyways, they feel pretty comfortable that they're not going to go hypoglycemic. And usually they don't. Every now and then we have one patient whose blood sugar levels go low and we encourage them just to break their fast and just to continue eating until they come in for their next appointment and always, always let us know, but just to continue eating till we can ingest their medication. But more often than not, it's, it's not a problem. Um, in our clinic, Jason, is the medical director and I'm the executioner um, of the program <laughs> and uh, Jason um, he likes to have his patients blood sugar levels run between about 8 and 10 millimoles per mm-hmm. liter um, and uh, most uh, in, in Canada um, doctors usually like to keep their patients blood sugar levels controlled somewhere between about 5 and 7 when they're diabetic and on medication and normal here in Canada is 3.6 to 5.5 but even on medication um, endocrinologists and family practitioners here like to keep them between 5 and 6. So a lot of our patients do feel comfortable um, with fasting when they know that their doctor is going to be letting their blood sugar levels run a little bit high. So he'll often adjust the the medications too on eating days just to let the blood sugar levels run a little bit high. People's biggest concern with that is, well, having blood sugar levels from 8 to 10 cause long-term, uh, cause damage? Well, in the long-term, yes. If it was to, if your blood sugar levels were always going to be between eight and 10, you know, five years down the road, you might see some kidney damage. There might be some um, cardiovascular disease related damage. But the idea with with our patients and we tell them is that they're supposed to be being proactive in executing this fasting and adjusting their diet. So their blood sugar levels should come down. Um, So they usually see it, you know, within a month, they start to notice their blood sugar levels coming down on the reduced medication, and then we'll reduce the medications again. And they're more comfortable with them running a little bit higher because they, they see them coming down on a month to month basis when we do their blood work. So that's very, very comforting for them. Of course, there are patients who can't be compliant for 
whatever reason. Um, I have one, one patient, he lost his wife and his son. Um, and then two weeks later, his other son was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And life was just very crazy for him. And he was not going to be able to fast or eat soundly emotionally. He just was very honest about that with us. So Dr. Fung increased his medications to keep his blood sugar levels sort of at five to six during the stressful time. And we told him to come in before, you know, when he's ready to do this, before he starts. So we can assess his blood sugar levels, do his blood work and talk about reducing his medications before he starts fasting again. Um, so as long as, as we know our patients um, are being consistent with their fasting, if, if life circumstances permit them to be compliant with the diet, um, then we're okay with them running a little bit on the higher side. So we will, um, in our clinic, uh, Jason will initially reduce the medications to have their sugars be between eight and 10. They naturally start to come down. Once they come down and we're seeing more sixes and sevens, Jason will further reduce the medication to bring them back up to eight to 10. And then once they're off of all medications, of course the goal is to get them mm. within the normal normal range. Um, so seeing more sugars of, of around four millimoles per liter in that case. Fantastic. And um, from my perspective, uh, if someone came in with eight to 10, I'd, I'd be a little bit nervous, but it'd be great to hear them say, I oh, know I'm, I'm doing a fasting protocol, I'm, I've changed my diet. And um, that's sort of the hope for me that when a diabetic comes in for their eye exam, it's I've been diagnosed with high blood sugar and I'm working on bringing that down and getting my medications down instead of I don't know what I'm taking, I don't know what my blood sugar is. So no, this is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, de yeah, definitely, definitely sounds like, like a... a excellent program and, and something that I've definitely been sharing your guys' website and, and the work you're doing with, with some of my patients here in New Zealand. Um, for somebody such as myself who has, like you, a family history of type 2 diabetes, often when I tell people that I'm on a fast, whether it's intermittent or, or an extended fast, people sort of say, oh, I could never do that. Oh, by 11 a.m. I'm starving. Um, mm -hmm. Firstly, what, why is that everybody's starving and they're snacking? And, and two, what is it actually about our endogenous levels of glucose that mean that we are fine and we're not going to be falling asleep, you know? Well, we have lots of stored um, stored food in our in our bodies. So, if a patient comes in and sits across from me and says, "I can't fast," you know, my body is going to enter starvation mode. Um, I will sort of, you know, indicate that they've got excess excess you know, food in their tummy. So we really tried to educate these people and explain to them what that body fat actually is. It's essentially stored energy that they haven't used. So when someone comes in and they'll say, you know, in your belly, it's like a refrigerator. And that refrigerator inside of it, you know, it's that extra half a pizza that you ate in 1992. It's that, you know, extra piece of pie that you had at Thanksgiving dinner last year. You have lots of food energy in you and your body is just going to fuel off of that food energy during the fast. So you won't be starving. Now, most people, it's the more mental aspect of how to handle, you know, the fear of starvation. Physically, a lot of our patients know that they're going to be okay. You know, we, we sort of explain to them about this excess fuel and how it's stored in their body. And most people understand that 
you know, we, we talk to, um, talk to our patients and uh, particularly those that are afraid of, of losing muscle mass. And this is one of Jason Fung's analogies that I think is very good. And it's a cabin in the woods scenario. So if you're at a cabin in the woods in the dead of winter, um, in true Canada, not Toronto, we're very wimpy here, but in like true Canada, um, where it can get very cold. Um, and you have a hundred pieces of chopped up firewood outside the cabin and you wanna make a fire, are you gonna use the firewood when you have so much firewood or are you gonna hack apart the sofa, the, the couch that you would um, otherwise be sitting on, be sleeping on, laying on to read or sitting on to have a discussion with, with your, your partner and your family or friends? Um, what, would you, what would you burn in the fire to make a fire? And everyone would say, well, the firewood, you've got a hundred pieces of firewood. You would use the firewood. You wouldn't break down the sofa. Sofas are very, very expensive and they're very functional. Um, so unless you had no firewood and it was in dire straits, then only then maybe would you hack up the, the sofa and use that to create a fire. So our muscles are very functional. They, they serve a purpose and they're very expensive, just like sofas are. And firewood is cheap and its only purpose is to create a fire. Just like our stored body fat, especially around our midsection is, it's just stored fuel. Its only purpose is to fuel our body. Otherwise, it's just sort of sitting there lying around promoting disease. So if you have a lot of stored fuel, you're going to be using that instead of breaking down important structures in your body that are very expensive and, and important to maintain. So a lot of people, they, that analogy seems to really resonate with them and they feel a little bit more confident um, fasting. Um, we talked to them too about using certain things as appetite suppressants like peppermint coffee, raw filtered apple cider vinegar, um, green tea, uh, regular coffee. Um, and uh, I mean, these things all have appetite suppressing properties to them. And sometimes it might just be a placebo effect with the patient too. But usually we encourage them to try it for, for a week first and see how it goes. I, you know, Jason will always say, what do you have to lose? Honestly, at this point, what do you have to lose? You know, your diabetes is getting worse. You're getting on more and more medications. Your blood pressure is now to control. Your kidneys are starting to, to develop damage from those sugars. What do you have to lose for trying this for one to two weeks? And I'll talk to them about using these appetite suppressing fluids to help get them through, you know, that 10 a.m., 11 a.m. snack time um, and to help them get through the evening time, you know, by taking something like peppermint tea that has no caffeine in it and talk to them about, you know, the cultural use of peppermint as an appetite suppressing property for, for hundreds of years. So whether it, it actually really has an impact on their appetite or not, a lot of people come back and they say, hey, it's just not, it's just not that difficult to do. Um, and they're getting results. And that will just drive them to continue fasting more and more, more regularly. Nice. Um, you, you spoke about one your Italian heritage and your family and and then your your husband there you know you you don't know if you would have married him if he wasn't on ketogenic <laughs> diet and uh family is so important and often they can be a little bit resistant to the things that you do how do you how do you or or how do you approach it with your with your patients to 
um, communicate the message forward without sounding like a Z-lot that, you know, you, you see you see people talk about sugar's poison, which, you know, c- could pro- possibly be true. But, yeah, what, what sort of things do you pass on to your patients? I, I share with them my experience. My father is a lawyer, and, at, and when I first started fasting, I was actually living with him temporarily, both him and my mother. And they thought I was insane because I flat out said, the phrase fasting, you know, I'm fasting. Um, And I thought he was going to try to get power of attorney over me um, in court. Like they were really scared. So I, um, then I tried with my friends. I went out to dinner with a group of friends, my age group. And I thought, okay, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm doing this fasting thing. Again, they all thought I was trying to commit suicide slowly. So I realized I had to change the semantics of it. um, And term it, uh, change it into something else. Um, so I went out to dinner with a second group of friends one night and I, um, they said, oh, you look fantastic. And I said, yeah, thank you. And I said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing like a tea detox. <laughs> I saw on social media that celebrities like Jessica Alba and, um, and other, uh, other younger celebrities were all promoting these like tea toxins. And so I started telling them about my tea toxins uh, or my teas. So I'm like, I drink peppermint tea to help with floating and and uh, to help with gas. And I drink, you know, this green tea in the morning that energizes me. And all my friends thought it sounded fabulous. And they're like, we saw so-and-so on Instagram, you know, doing a tea tox too. And they said, so you're just drinking tea? And I said, well, I drink water too. And they're like, that's fantastic. So I learned really quickly that how I phrased it to people made a big difference. Um, so um, detoxing or detoxing or time-restricted eating works a lot better um, when you're trying to explain this to new people. So we usually recommend that people just sort of approach it cautiously with their family and friends and coworkers um, when their community um, is not really supportive of the notion of fasting. Um, so saying time-restricted eating usually goes over better um, with people or a de- detoxing or like detoxing that usually um, garners a lot more positive results. So we talked to our patients about the semantics. And also um, Jason says like the number one rule of the fasting club is to never tell anyone that you're fasting. <laughs> um, so not that we encourage um, our patients, our clients to become pathological liars, um, but I've always found that it's best to lead by example fairly quietly. Um, and once you've garnered a little bit more interest, then you can sort of, you know, be more bold with it. So I learned with my my own family who are really frightened by this that um, I, I needed to be cautious of what I said and I just needed to lead by example. And well, my father who wanted to get power of attorney over me and had me committed because um, he thought I was going to develop this terrible eating disorder, um, he lost 70 pounds last year from intermittent fasting and he brought his blood sugar levels down. His A1C was below six. So back in the normal range, um, leading by example, not really rubbing it in anyone's faces. Um, it's still very new. 
And when you try to rub it in people's faces, it rubs them the wrong way. Um, so we usually tell people just, you know, keep quiet, you know, don't overshare, um, use phrases like time restricted eating or detoxing. And um, when people approach you and, and see how successful you are, that's the best way of spreading the news and then open up to them a little bit then. When it came to my own father, he said, no, I can't dispute um, how great you look and how amazing your blood test results are. And you've been able to maintain this for years when he's lost and gained a hundred pounds in his life more times than I can count. Um, so we, the evidence will speak for itself as long as you're doing a good job leading by, by example, and you don't have to rub it in, in the face of your friends and family. That's usually the worst, worst thing that you can do. So be mindful of your words and be mindful of how much you share at the start. Absolutely. Uh, what is the importance of blood work and, and what do your patients generally monitor? So um, in our program, we, we recommend blood work to be done every three months and then every six months. Um, so every three months, um, we sort of just check your blood counts, your electrolytes, minerals like calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. Magnesium is a terrible blood test though here in Canada, so it doesn't really tell anyone about their magnesium levels. We just assume that everyone's deficient pretty much here in North America. Um, so those we check A1C every three months. Um, and fasting glucose. Um, every six months, um, we check fasting insulin levels, uh, C-peptide levels. The C-peptide levels just tell us how well your pancreas is functioning. It, um, most of our patients have very high C-peptide levels because they're overproducing insulin in response to their, their standard North American diet that's very high in carbohydrates. And we do a lipid panel um, every six months as well. We don't do it more often than that because there's so much um, unknown about what true numbers mean. Um, you know, is having a having a high HDL sort of is, is good for men, but is it that good for for women? We don't we don't really know. And there's not uh, cholesterol is something that still very much scares everybody. Um, but we don't really know um, and uh, what, what these results sort of mean. So we're more interested in your triglyceride levels, to be perfectly honest, when we do a lipid panel. Um, we don't run the fun, fancy lipid panel here, the NMR lipo profile that sort of tells you how many large LDL particles you have, how many small ones, um, and your insulin resistance score. Unfortunately, that's not something that um, the Canadian government offers uh, yet, and Canadian labs do. Uh, in Canada, we can outsource it to the United States and uh, for a, a fee that's not covered by our insurance here. So I'll do it once a year. A lot of patients will do it do it once a year just to sort of get particle size. But I'm not too worried about my cholesterol um, levels because we don't really know what they mean yet. So I focus on my triglycerides, my insulin, um, and infl inflammatory markers. So something else that we check every six months is a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Um, and uh, usually if the insulin and the, the uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein are low and the triglycerides are low, I'm very much at peace, you know, with the whatever the rest of the cholesterol numbers are. And, um, and that's how we sort of judge it with our current patients um, right now. So we do everything at baseline and then repeat it every three months or six months. Um, if someone is doing longer fasts and they're one of our office patients because of our great um, public health 
care system here. Um, we will do their blood work more on a weekly basis just to you know, assess their kidney function, assess their li uh, li liver values um, and, uh, and their blood sugar levels and then electrolyte levels um, on a weekly basis during longer fasts. Nice. And so Verda Health released their one-year results last week and that was one of the things they touched on that they did have an increase in LDL but a greater increase in HDL. Um, mm -hmm. But they were, they were key. Uh, one of the key things that they promoted was that the APOB was down, and like I say, the C-reactive protein was down, as well as all the rest losing weight, lowering HbA1c. Lots of people have been going after that uh, LDL level. Is, is anybody sort of going after Dr. Fong or, or, or your clinic around around the cholesterol? Uh, no. Um, usually, I, I think a lot of the general practitioners that work with us um, uh, are, are more aware that you know things are changing, and mm. there's a huge lack of understanding um, when it comes to cholesterol right now. So, if Jason is to take someone off of a statin, um, we don't get any um, any negative uh, feedback from any of our our colleagues. Um, in our clinic, you know, because there's so much left unknown, um, Jason, um, if the patient has a history of a heart attack or a stroke mm. or has had bypass surgery, he's, he leaves them on the satin, tries to bring them down to a smaller dose. In our clinic, when patients are fasting and they initially lose a lot of weight um, and then their weight loss stabilizes. So it's not that their weight stabilizes, their weight loss stabilizes. So it's not uncommon for someone to within the first couple of months to lose something like 25 or 30 pounds, you know, from fasting, but they're not going to continue to drop like 15 mm. pounds a month afterwards. Um, so we find initially with fasting, they get these larger drops. Of course, a lot of it is water loss, um, but they, they lose um, the most weight within the first couple of months. Then after that, it's sort of the weight loss is sort of consistent between half a pound to one and a half pounds per person per week, depending on what they're doing for fasting. So we usually find that their first cholesterol test is just totally outrageous um, when they, uh, after losing that initial chunk of weight, but as their weight loss stabilizes, even though the patient's continuing to lose weight, the cholesterol numbers sort of all go in expected trajectory. So the LDL usually declines a little bit, the HDL usually goes up, and the total cholesterol stays around high normal, and the triglycerides are very low, and the C-reactive protein is very low. Um, so it usually stabilizes. So we, we do educate people on that at the start and tell them that their first one or two cholesterol tests are probably going to be a mess. Try to explain to them, you know, their body's breaking down lots of fat and mm. there's all these different things going on in the body and just to wait. So it's better to be pro proactive with the patients instead of, you know, getting them in a panic state, preparing them for what the test results are going to be. And then just further reiterating that we're still learning so much more um, about what these numbers actually mean and, you know, what are true markers of, of heart disease and spend a little bit of time talking to them about what C-reactive protein is and what, what that means and, um, and what their triglycerides actually mean. Um, and usually we find people don't get too panicked about it because we have those conversations with them in advance and we really prepare them for, for the test results that are going to come. There's the odd cardiologist that sort of freaks out 
um, <laughs> Dr. Fung periodically. Um, but uh, there's all kinds of great, um, great information out there, research coming out that shows, you know, the relationship, you know, particularly between saturated fats and heart disease, that there isn't much of a relationship there at all. Um, and there's a lot of information coming out nowadays, too, about the, the importance that or the role that insulin plays in heart disease. So usually when someone does approach Jason about this, um, you know, we or myself, we have um Quite the quite the resource list to go back to and sort of send them some updated literature on that. And uh, usually we don't we don't create too many waves here. People um, people are become quite open minded and um, and they're willing to read the research that we send. So we're fortunate to have a community of more open minded um, physicians. A lot of the biggest negative feedback, I guess. I could say that we get from physicians is that um, this program takes uh, it takes a lot of determination, like to be able to commit to doing intermittent fasting, to really be able to overhaul your diet. Um, people don't visit. Uh, there are a lot of physicians out there that just think people don't have the willpower or the drive mm. to make such dramatic changes and to sustain them um, for a long period of time. Um, but I, I think these physicians really underestimate, you know, the motivation that these patients have. You know, we see people and they just their lives are so miserable. They can't afford these expensive medications. They're too sick to travel. They're too sick to enjoy their families. Like they're really willing to try. And no one's perfect. Dr. Fung's not perfect. I'm not perfect 100% of the time. You can't be. Um, but it is actually really easy with practice to become perfect a good 90 to 95% of the time. And, um, and we really just try to create a warm and welcoming environment to our patients. So we keep them motivated and really express to them that, you know, this year your diet might be 25% better and next year it might be, you know, 40% better. Maybe the year after it'll be 60% better. But as long as you're making progress, you know, not to expect perfection because then if you don't achieve it then you're going to get into this emotional cycle where you just you're blaming yourself you feel like you failed at another diet you might as well go and eat all of this crappy food again that's going to make you sick um so I think a lot of these doctors, they, they really sort of underestimate um, the drive of a lot of these patients. And as long as I think you really express to patients that it's all about progress, not perfection, that really helps keep them motivated. So like, it, it's just it's so cool to go into work um, every day and see people just being a little bit better and not expecting to be perfect. And every year their results keep improving. They keep losing weight. Their blood sugars keep staying better. They keep coming off of medication. They're feeling good um, and they want to continue feeling good. So they're even more motivated to work on their diet and to fast. And uh, I think um, we've been able to garner a lot of support now that we've been doing Doing this for five years and doctors um, locally have been seeing their patient be compliant and just continue to get better and not decline but just to continue to make progress so that's um, I think uh, a, a big factor why we've got so much support here and then Toronto too is the most culturally culturally uh, most culturally diversity in the in the world um, so there's so many people that um, participate in events like Ramadan mm. um, 
And uh, I'd say prior to this, in my nephrology group, 30% um, of our patients participate in Ramadan every year. Used to really screw up my research, and now I'm begging <laughs> everyone to do it. Um, but it, it would screw up my research in the sense in the past that they would all improve, you know, during this time when I, for certain factors, I you were expecting them to sort of decline. They would all come off of medications, their kidney status would stabilize or improve. Um, and that, that was against the norm. So sort of looking back, you know, I think how naive was I to not notice this or, you know, I, it was definitely noticed, um, I'll tell you that, but, you know, not think about it in more more detail as to why this was happening um, during this time. So a lot of our patients, um, you know, over 50% of the population of Toronto was not born in the city of Toronto or in Canada. Um, so they, Greek Orthodox, you know, heard, traditionally they fast for almost 200 days of the year. Now it's they fast for those many days of the year on bread, but they're, everyone's very aware of how things were initially done um, and how this fast was initially executed. So we, we have people from all different walks of life and all different religions who, for the most part, um, back home, wherever home was, fasting was a big part of, of their culture. Um, so we've, we've had a lot, of, um, a lot of success with those patients. And then their success and their just ability to be able to do this period motivates more of the patients who did grow up here in Canada and who grew up eating seven times throughout the day. If they see a group of 20 people who can do this and get results, that's motivating to them. So I do think Jason Fung and I were really lucky geographically as of starting this because half the people that come into our clinic, I'll be perfectly honest, say, all right, you know, we did that when we were kids, you know, time to do it again. And uh, fasting is not a new thing to them um, because of where we're located so it's uh, and, they, and they motivate the rest um, which is good so we do all of our follow-up appointments actually in small groups um, we started out that way just because of huge time restrictions and, and that Jason and I were doing this like on the side to mm -hmm. our nephrology business um, and then we decided we were going to invest more of our time into it. And we started seeing people one-on-one -on -one and they started to decline or they started to be too overwhelmed with the idea of fasting. So we brought them all back into groups. And, um, you know, in every group, you have someone who's pretty much, you know, fasted their whole lives till they moved to Canada and then came to Canada and ate like garbage and became obese and diabetic. Um, but they start fasting again and get great results. And then you have, you know, the one, you know, beyond motivated person who um, has read everything on the internet there is to read about fasting and every book at a, uh, you know, at a, at a bookstore about it and is, is eager to try something because they're well aware that the standard care um, doesn't work anymore. And then you always have two people that are semi-skeptical. So when you merge them all together, you know, everyone gets motivated. They share stories. And, um, and then we, we have, they make progress after that. So we found that group support with patients um, has been really important. I've had two patients in five years not wrote requests that they were not in groups because they didn't feel comfortable sharing. Um, but most patients who are leery of the groups at first, they, they join one or two and they realize everyone's in the same boat as them. 
they're all on the same medications. They all have the same lab results. They all have the same weight issues. They're all getting the same blood sugar levels. And then they feel a sense of camaraderie. So, um, so then they end up, you know, being very vocal and participating in the groups as an equal member and, and they get a lot out of it. So the groups have been very vital, I think, for our success. Fantastic. And that goes back to that, that community thing I was asking about. Um, also from a personal perspective, I've got a, a patient who has gone from um, in an hour sort of millimoles per mole, 160, so way up, I think that's around 13 or 14, down to 62, so I think he's about seven and a half now. And he had the, his doctor put him in the paper and it was fantastic. He was a truck driver and he, 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 he said exactly that. He, he'd been grabbing pies and, and sausage rolls on the go while he was driving and eating at all times of the night and just managed to structure his meals a bit better, reduce the amount of carbohydrate and bang his. And he was so excited about it. Like I said, they start off from a place of feeling unwell to this improvement in, in quality of life and, and, and it's awesome to see. Um, you, sp you spoke about time that you and Jason have invested in this and now you two have a podcast. What can people expect from uh, the Obesity Code podcast? Oh, it's really cool. Um, we're actually really proud of it. All the credit for this podcast goes to Carl Franklin mm -hmm. of the Two Keto Dudes. Um, he's a real mastermind, and he spends about 14 hours editing every episode. So uh, Carl's a true star of the podcast. Um, but it's something we started up towards the end of 2017. Um, uh, we try to – the podcast airs on Wednesday mornings in Toronto um, and Eastern time. Um, so uh, about three out of four podcasts have a featured patient story where um, we discuss this patient's journey. So Carl interviews the patient and you learn about all the different trials and tribulations um, with their medical history and with their fasting and with their diet. Um, Jason offers commentary more on sort of the science because he, um, I'm the one that works with these patients in terms of fasting. He just adjusts their medication. So he talks a little bit more about the science, like why, you know, if, if why someone's insulin levels would go down, you know, during a fast, um, for example. And I'll talk a little bit more of the how she did it um, or how he did it and the why we chose this fasting regimen, more of the how-tos. Um, and then some of our friends like Gary Topps, um, and uh, they'll they'll be on periodically too, discussing um, you know sort of their more area of expertise. So I, I believe our first uh, obesity cod podcast is on a client of mine named Marie Drake, um, who had a history of breast cancer, and she worked with a naturopathic doctor named Nasha Winters in the United States, who sort of specialized in ketogenic diets for um, cancer patients. And so Nasha was on that episode, sort of explaining a little bit more of what she sees in our clinic and how this is applicable. So we have some of our, our friends in the low-carb community come on and offer their two cents and their advice on the topic um, that's being discussed. At, um, during that episode too. Um, once a month, we do something a little bit offbeat. Um, this past month, we did a Q&A um, with Jason and I, and um, it was a nice way to break things up. Um, so we're going to um, be trying to do a, a Q&A once a month too. So people who write in to Carl um, asking for um, questions, um, 
then we'll try to tackle those those questions on the podcast. A, a lot of the times, um, you know, people, uh, there's so much information out there. And Jason and I, every day, there's about a dozen times a day, we see ourselves misquoted on social media. Um, and then they'll say, well, how come Megan has a different view than Jason? And it's all like, neither one of us has either of those views um, that we're being quoted as having. Um, so, um, so on this podcast, just to sort of clear up those issues and just sort of reinforce the message that Jason and I are actually trying to trying to spread. <laughs> it's all right. Um, and so you, you say there's a lot of information and a little bit of confusion out there. Where would you like to direct people if they want to get more information? Maybe one around fasting and two around what you guys do there in Toronto. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we have a, a blog on our website called idmprogram.com. So you can go to www.idmprogram.com and check out the blog on our website. Um, there's a bunch of videos up there too. They're free videos that um, Jason has done talking about the development of insulin resistance and the etiology of obesity and you know, what insulin toxicity actually is. Um, so there's tons of great free information on our on the website. Um, there are two programs. We have the individualized coaching program where you can join and work with one of our therapeutic fasting coaches, um, troubleshoot your issues specifically and help you figure out how to best incorporate fasting into your life um, and get get the results. And we have a monthly membership subscription website that's got uh, meal plans, recipes, Q&A videos, science videos to help us sort of explain to you the changes that's going on out there with new research coming out, either for or against fasting or for or against um, low carb dieting. So you understand what's a good research study, you know, why something that might be um, anti high fat, maybe it's just not a good study. And sort of looking out and discussing, you know, the importance um, between understanding the, what a sample size actually means, um, and uh, you know, that what is a correlation study? Is that a good study? Is that a bad study? So we're really trying to help educate everyone to read the literature, so they're not just reading headlines. Um, and that's that's the biggest thing. We really want to educate people on actually how to read this literature for themselves rather than read headlines or read articles written about the research from someone who might not know how to read the research effectively. Um, so it's a great place to go to get information straight from uh, straight from the source. Um, my colleague Jason Fung, um, he's written a couple of books, um, The Complete Guide to Fasting and the Obesity Code. And at the end of March, he has another book that's being released called The Diabetes Code. So that mm. will be available at the end of March. Um, and you know, the books, they're like $15, $20. Um, so uh, not, not a whole lot of a financial investment for a lot of information. And... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, not a whole lot of investment for um, for some great information. So there's tons of free stuff on the website. There's um, a monthly subscription site for uh, it's 39 US dollars a month. There's an individualized coaching program that's more of a, uh, more of an executive program, um, and uh, and there's great books out there too by us too. So you can read it all, listen to it all, um, just sort of keep refreshing ourselves, um, you know, sort of with what uh, what our philosophies are. And then the podcast is a great place to um, 
to get some sort of updated and refreshed information too. Fantastic. And um, I've heard, heard a, a podcast with the fellow writer of the Complete Guide to Fasting and it was, it was cool how they sort of thought, well, where do we find the information? Oh, we better write it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Um, is there any sort of pearls of wisdom that you'd like to share with people about your own health journey and and not giving up and finding the answers? Is there any, any anything that you sort of, how you approached it that you'd like to share? Um, I, I think with a lot of us do everything to extremes. Um, and I was one of those people. And I realized after a personal blunder in my mid-20s that I couldn't be someone who was extreme about everything. I had to learn to be a more moderate person and set smaller goals and build upon those goals um, or else I was just going to fail miserably in life. And um, when, I, when I got diagnosed with diabetes and when I, I gained about 100 pounds in a year, um, it, you sort of want to jump in with both feet um, and just do it all 100%. Um, and I, I stopped and I took a few deep breaths and I said, every time you do that, you fail. So really writing down, having small goals, um, not blaming yourself for not being perfect. Um, you know, I went from one cheat meal a week to a cheat meal every two weeks to once a month to now maybe a couple times a year, once a year. Um, it, it comes with time. And I think that um, you, you just be very patient, set smaller goals and, um, and really celebrate those goals. Uh, the biggest issue I deal with with patients is that they beat themselves up for not being perfect all of the time. But I can tell you there's very few people out there who are going to be perfect on Christmas Day. Um, and... Uh, so you can't go, you can't have an all or nothing perspective on this because then what happens is if you um, go off track on Christmas day, then you feel bad about it. Then you go off track for like three months afterwards and you just become more sick in that time. And now it's going to take more time to undo that damage if it can be undone. Um, so to really sort of give yourself a, a break, um, give yourself a good pat on the back and just remember that it is progress, not perfection. And to be really mindful of small goals and celebrate, celebrate those, um, small goals. I tell people, I said, there is one time, it's about a year and a half ago now, we just had a terrible, terrible night. I had a, a, a nephew who was newborn get rushed to the hospital with potentially liver failure. We had um, a, a cousin's significant other who we were close to as a family. His heart just stopped while he was playing basketball and he was 22 years old, all in one night. Um, and everything was just super crazy. Um, and I was at one hospital with the, with the baby and I craved green tea. And I started laughing in the waiting room like a lunatic because I just wanted green tea. It was, uh, you know, I didn't want pretzels. I didn't want potato chips. I didn't want a chocolate bar or a cookie. I wanted green tea. And green tea was what I felt I needed to comfort me. And that was just so crazy um, for me uh, to experience. Um, so just to be patient out there because, you know, the 
if you fall off your bike, that's fine. Get back on it. You know, if you fall off with your diet, that's fine. Get back on it. And just getting back on it consistently will, you know, bring you to a period in your t- life where when things are really stressful, you'll crave green tea and you're not going to crave that McDonald's. Um, so it, it's really cool to see these things pay off. So just be patient and these things will pay off. Thank you so much, Megan. I'll uh, let you get on with the rest of your day and I'll kick into the rest of mine. It's been an absolute pleasure and so many gems there and I hope my audience enjoys that as well. Thank you. Thanks, you, Ryan. Thanks, everyone. How good was that? love what Megan said there about being a little bit more moderate on things, not being so intense and full on. Great wee lesson that we could all take on board, myself included. Um, I'll just add one more resource there and I'll include all of those in the show notes and that's Jason Fung's lecture series on The Diet Doctor. That was how I first came across Dr. Jason Fung. He was talking about fasting for reversal of type 2 diabetes. Those of you who have been on my blog, stagryan.com, will have seen that I put up my Pichacucha from the Hamilton Arts Festival. In there, I talk about the locks on the door changing with type 2 diabetes. That basically comes from Jason Fung's talks with the Diet Doctor. So I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And what a pleasure it was having Megan on board, full of knowledge and obviously experience in doing such amazing work. Something that uh, when you're working in practice, you see every day and you just scratch your head about what can be done about what is turning into a giant problem, a massive epidemic. As mentioned, it's in my family history and it's something that I'm looking forward to preventing. And it's just great having a tool in your tool belt like fasting to just reset the insulin sensitivity and keep yourself going along well. Um, Massive research going around there in terms of longevity. Uh, Those of you who really want to get into the weeds, Megan spoke about time-restricted eating. Listen to the two podcasts with Rhonda Patrick. Again, I'll include this in the show notes with Dr. Sachin Panda. Wow, blows your mind. Like all episodes, this episode was brought to you by Waikito. You can go on to waikito0.experienceketo.com and watch the video about being in ketosis. Funnily enough, it refers to that those logs of wood on, on the fire, uh, puts it in simple terms, and why you feel so good on a state of ketosis. Also, our Facebook page, and it's been cool to see a lot of traffic going through there, W-A-I-K-E-T-O on Facebook, just about normally, Waikito. We include all the podcasts there, lots of articles from the likes of Jason Fung, from the Diet Doctor, Dr. Dem, Dr. Dom Diagostino, Professor Grant Schofield and Cliff Harvey, we've had on here, plenty of posts from Keegan Smith, and yeah, my blog will be up on there. And of course, just random photos of my day from my Instagram at Stag Vision. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. It's awesome to see the numbers. And thank you so much to all those who have left a review. It means so much to me and means that more people can hear this podcast. Cheers.